0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where history and Jewish history meet. We are very, very pleased to have with us today, Professor W. Barksdale Maynard. Professor Maynard was a lecturer in art and architectural history at Princeton University and John Hopkins University from 2002 to 2015. He is the author of seven books and more than 100 articles in 27 magazines and newspapers, including the Washington Post and the New York Times. Uh, just a selected list of Professor Maynard's books include The Brandywine, An Intimate Portrait, Princeton, America's Campus, Buildings of Delaware, Walden Pond, Architecture in the United States from the 1800 to 1850. And today we will be discussing Woodrow Wilson, Princeton to the presidency, Uh, former New Jersey senator and Hall of Fame basketball star Bill Bradley called uh, this wonderful book a fascinating account. Uh, Former Secretary of State James Baker uh, called it masterful and Pulitzer Prize uh, winning columnist George Will said it is a, a work of high value. So um, we'll we'll get right to it. Uh, Thank you again for today's um, interview. Just a little bit um, about your background and how you became interested in Woodrow Wilson.
1: Thank you very much, Ari. I really appreciate your introduction. And um, Woodrow Wilson came to Princeton University in New Jersey as a young southerner. And I did the same uh, more than 100 years later and I was intrigued by what sort of experience he'd had. It must have been culture shock, I thought, to have come from the, the deep south to the north. I, I found that myself in the 1980s. As I began to study Wilson, though, I became completely fascinated by his contradictions. He is the most perplexing. He is the strangest, most uh, maddening person in many ways, um, and i spent a long time just trying to figure him out. He's a southerner, but not a typical Southerner. He's an academic, but doesn't really like academia very much. Uh, he's extremely shy. He loves to be at home all the time, uh, reading Wordsworth to his wife beside the fireplace. And yet the same guy wants to run the world. Um, so in a thousand ways, he mystifies me. He continues to do so. And I hope that people who read the book will be able to try to figure him out a little bit. But he defies, completely defies uh, our Total understanding.
0: So if we set the scene um, in terms of what period we are in American history, just a little bit of a timeline, and what were the major early influences that shaped
1: Wilson? I think key to Wilson is his father, Joseph Ruggles Wilson. Joseph Ruggles Wilson is one of these larger-than-life people. He was sure he'd been put on the earth to do greater things that in fact he ended up doing. And so there's a titanic uh, ego to Joseph Wilson. There's also, I think, a good deal of frustration that he wasn't a great man, but he took his little boy Tommy and he said, look, Tommy, you are going to be great. You are going to achieve all the things I never did. And Joseph was not only a very prominent Presbyterian minister in various towns throughout the South, but he was also a professor at a theological seminary. And so we see a lot of the patterns of Woodrow Wilson's later life in his dad, Uh, an interest in education, a belief in self-improvement, a belief in the idea that great men standing before a crowd can sway them and influence them by oratory. Also, though, there's this emphasis on fighting to get what you want. Joseph Wilson was a ferocious combatant when it came to uh, policy differences at the seminary. He would pound his fist. He would say, I know I'm right. And yes, we see a lot of that in little Tommy Wilson once he becomes president of Princeton University and eventually president of the United States.
0: What, what led um, this young southerner to Princeton and New Jersey in the north?
1: Princeton was a famous, famous college when Tommy Wilson arrived there in the 1870s. It had been founded before the American Revolution. Princeton is the fourth oldest university in the United States, and it had a strong Presbyterian emphasis. It trained a lot of Presbyterian ministers. Princeton also had a national reputation. This may sound peculiar, but Princeton was proud of being the national school whereas Harvard and Yale were just New England schools. New Englanders went to Harvard and Yale. They trained New Englanders for leadership in New England. This was the Princeton view. But Princeton men, it was said, were all through the South, Midwest, and all the way out into the West. And so this appealed greatly to young Woodrow Wilson. He was nothing if not ambitious. He goes to Princeton thinking he's going to be the senator from Virginia. That's his ambition. He even has the calling cards drawn up. Senator from Virginia. He's ready to go.
0: So so what was his pathway uh, when he came to Princeton to become the president of the university? You know, some people have this impression that academia is you're sitting in an ivory tower, it's pure intellectual, and then sometimes you hear by Henry Kissinger the you know the politics of the university was was the training ground for the politics of the world. What was Wilson's pathway in Princeton?
1: That is a complicated question. He was a controversial choice actually to bring on as a faculty member in 1890, which is surprising because he was already a distinguished scholar. He had trained at Johns Hopkins University for his PhD, um, well-respected. But some of the Princeton leadership feared he was too Southern. And this was still that era in which there was a lot of hard feeling surrounding Reconstruction. And so Woodrow Wilson did, in fact, make it onto the faculty, became instantly the most popular professor because of his oratorical abilities. He could hold a lecture hall spellbound. And so he became a beloved professor. And he rises up through the ranks, becomes president of the university in 1902. But what's fascinating to me is that during these years, Princeton is changing. It goes from a college to a university in 1896. Its its profile is rising constantly, partly due to the innovations of Professor Wilson, but also at the same time, the United States is changing. And during these years, you have the Spanish-American War. Suddenly, as Wilson realizes, America is stepping forth onto the world stage. To Professor Wilson, what this means is we've got to train leaders for 20th century America. And to Wilson, this becomes really urgent. And so Wilson starts reforming Princeton University. And I mean, he, he tries to reform every aspect, from the teaching place among the undergraduates, People don't like that so much. But basically what's happening, Wilson becomes a reformer to try to make sure that Princeton catches up with America. But at the same time, America starts to notice Wilson. Gosh, look at what's happening at Princeton. Here is this dynamic, intellectual, uh, progressive reformer who's doing extraordinary things. Maybe he would make a great uh, political candidate.
0: What kind of a student body did Princeton have then in terms of Catholics, Jews, women, African-Americans, anyone that didn't fit the white Protestant model of a student?
1: I think to put this in context, remember that there were relatively few colleges in the United States, a few hundred compared to thousands today. And very few people went to college in those days. Even in Congress, which is where Wilson wanted to end up, only one congressman in four had ever been to college. So college was, was rare. And even rarer was to go to one of the really top schools that call themselves universities. And Princeton was late in deciding to become a university. So when we look at Princeton, around the time Wilson was there, it's very small. It's not much bigger than a modern high school. And it is overwhelmingly um, Episcopalians and Presbyterians. That's really, that is the student body. So at the time Wilson leaves Princeton in 1910, there are only um, 6% of the students are Jewish, extremely few. But you compare that to the fact that there were also only 6% of the students Catholic. So it was very hard to get into Princeton if you were what they would have thought of as in any way different. And, you know, this is deeply troubling to us today. We look back on this and we think, absolutely deplorable. This is not the way we would run a university now. I think in Wilson's mind, he did not want to bring in students to the student body that he thought would be bullied and hazed. And if you've read F. Scott Fitzgerald's book, This Side of Paradise, which is about the Princeton undergraduate experience. Fitzgerald says, if you so much as wore a green hat, your social life was over, you were were dead. So that's the sort of environment, highly intolerant of outsiders and outside differences, but at the same time, internally proud of being a kind of little democratic utopia that produced, they thought, leaders for America. But let me be clear, it was not coeducational, that doesn't happen until the 60s, and there were no Blacks at all. That did not happen until another 40 years.
0: What strengths were exhibited in, uh, at Princeton by Wilson that later manifested itself in his political career and his presidency? Strengths.
1: He had remarkable strengths. I have to say, researching Wilson, he's clearly a genius. His ability to read voraciously, comprehend everything he read, then report it out to the world. He is a tireless, ceaseless worker. He called his work ethic superhuman. And I absolutely agree with that. Not only was he a Princeton professor, he spoke all over the country in countless uh, lecture halls and uh, meetings. He increasingly positions himself as a person who comments on the events of the day. He's always ready to condemn Theodore Roosevelt and and any Republican. Um, He's a very uh, ambitious, ceaselessly busy man. And so those skills, um, certainly in the White House, produce what we sometimes call the four fat years of uh, great progress in the White House, followed by the four lean years of wrangling and difficulties. And that pattern mirrors exactly what had happened at Princeton, the four fat years of, of Wilson as the great persuader, producing incredible reform results, but then followed by four years where everything goes wrong.
0: So, so what were the, the shortcomings in those latter years that, again, at Princeton, that found expression in the latter years of the presidency?
1: Well, I've alluded to the fact that Wilson is a paradox from beginning to end. He is deeply perplexing. He perplexes me. He's perplexed every biographer. He perplexed his contemporaries. They could not figure him out. Wilson could be extraordinarily difficult if you agreed with him, if you went along with him, you had a friend for life. No one could be more loyal. But if you suggested to Wilson that he might be wrong, He could potentially just cut you out forever. And he did that to many, many close friends, many allies. He was his own worst enemy in that sense. And what biographers have tried to figure out is, why does he do this? I guess the number one theory is he's a serious uh, Presbyterian. He seems to model his leadership style on the Old Testament prophet. Uh, He's divinely inspired. At one point, he does pound the desk and, and tell a fellow in his office, God ordained me to be president of Princeton, and my reforms are meant to be. I'm um, Very hard to argue with that. Um, so he's Presbyterian in, in, a, in an extremely uh, intense way. That's part of it. What I've tried to argue in the book, too, is that he's also modeling himself on great men throughout history. He admires George Washington intensely, for example. Um, But, you know, we we look at George Washington as a kind of, um, uh, you know, a stuffed shirt. Wilson saw George Washington, above all, as hot-headed. And that's what he admired about Washington, is that he was a ferocious leader. So um, Wilson has an unusual take on his great men. But there's a third factor as to why Wilson could be so perplexingly impossible, and that's his health. Something was terribly wrong with his health all through the years of the princeton presidency he would at one time he woke up in the morning he couldn't move his right hand it just lay limp on the desk so what did he do he teaches himself to write with the left hand he just he just plows ahead and then another day he wakes up he cannot see out of one eye so something is wrong and the theory now is that he was having a series of little strokes and as you know if you have a stroke it can change your personality. It can make you difficult. It can make you suspicious. It can make you irritable. And we do see all of those things at Princeton. And of course, again, we're going to see them in a much worse way in the White House. And how
0: does Wilson go from Princeton to the, let's see, people have, have gotten to know him. He's speaking some kind of a national figure. People, obviously, Princeton see his strengths and his weaknesses. What's the path from Princeton to the
1: White House? I mentioned the fat years and the lean years, and it's in those four later years at Princeton where it's becoming a terrible burden, not only on Wilson, but on his family, because he's just fighting with everybody. He's tried to reform Princeton. He's done extraordinary things by improving the faculty, He's rebuilt the campus in a beautiful Gothic style of architecture. All of that's been great. But then when he tries to reform student life, there's a huge pushback from the wealthy Republican uh, families who've been sending their kids to Princeton, and they do not want this man that they think is a socialist to come in and tell their students who they should eat with and how they should spend their free time. That's called the quad fight. And after the quad fight grinds to a halt, Wilson loses, then there's the battle over where to put the graduate college. And every Princetonian knows this is the, the most extraordinary academic feud in the history of higher education. And it ends up again with Wilson defeated. And finally, he's right on the brink. He's got to leave Princeton. He knows he's gotta leave. And suddenly the opportunity to run for governor of New Jersey is right there. And the timing the timing is extraordinary because this is the moment at which progressivism is sweeping across the nation. And Woodrow Wilson is an absolute outsider candidate. And so he he's, he's never even been to the state house in New Jersey. And he says, I'm running and I'm going to reform New Jersey the way I reformed Princeton. And that's just so- a springboard, as you know. He's not long in at the governor's house in the nineteen twelve. He's running for president.
0: So so the, the dream of being a Virginian Southern senator gets replaced by being a governor of North Northern New Jersey. He's already made the shift from the South to the North.
1: Yes, and that's part of the paradox. Is he's he's a proud Southerner and yet he doesn't live in the South. He doesn't really think like a lot of Southerners think. He's extremely progressive. In fact, he says to a friend. Many Southerners are conservative. I am not conservative. I am a radical. And, and where
0: did he develop this overarching political philosophy? Was that at Princeton, that predated Princeton?
1: It's an excellent question. He grows up in what he calls the manse, the, uh, the rectory. So he's growing up in, in sort of genteel poverty, the child of a minister. His wife, too, grows up in the manse. And Woodrow Wilson is extremely frugal. He is extremely uh, stingy. He's very um, um, uninterested in worldly things. And I think this shapes him profoundly because here he is now at Princeton in the 1890s. And he's looking around. The students are coming straight down from Fifth Avenue. Their parents are the the Henry Clay Fricks and the uh, J.P. Morgans. These are the richest people maybe who've ever lived. And so Woodrow Wilson sees this on a daily basis. He sees the clothes, he sees the lifestyles. This is the Gilded Age. The lifestyles are incredible. The wealth is phenomenal. And then he sees these wealthy New Yorkers trying to run Princeton University with their great cash donations. And so he stiffens up against the rich. He despises big business, the trusts and anybody who gets advantage from being wealthy. He really is radical.